In respect of your listening experience, there is conversation surrounding physical childhood abuse, wartime experiences specific to Vietnam, vet suicide, and Lawrence himself is a Navy man, and he does swear like a sailor. <laughs> it's glorious, but maybe don't want kids around when you listen to this one. It's a deeply harrowing yet truly redeeming and gorgeous story. Really hope you enjoy it. And I think in the words of Ed Tick, our warrior stories are stories that the civilians really need to hear to truly honor them and to support them in their recovery for making such a grave sacrifice for our freedoms. Now enjoy the show. Our modern Western culture places little to no value on the power of our nightly dreams to inspire, shift, and reorganize our lives. This podcast demands a deep reconsideration of the role our dreams play on our path to a more vital and meaningful life. The following is living proof of the life-affirming power of dreams to affect change and redirect the trajectory of our inner and outer lives. How do you recover the parts of yourself that have been lost? Recover your sense of safety after you've been through trauma, your health after illness, your heart after loss, your humanity after violence and war. Many of us are going through the days and nights of our lives feeling like something is missing. Something we used to have and even took for granted is gone. It leaves a hole, a void, and it's natural to try to fill it with poor substitutes. We work too much, eat and drink too much, distract ourselves too much, shop too much, seek pleasure in sex and drugs and whatnot too much, and even love too much. We go to excess because we're trying to fill the empty space where what we lost used to be. People who come back from war may leave something on the battlefield that can seem like it'll never return, and they lose everything. Their safety, their health, their heart, their humanity. Our guest, Lawrence, is one of those warriors who lost everything, and this is his story about how he recovered it with the help of his dreams. I'm J.M. DeBoard. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Dreams That Shape Us podcast. I am your co-host, Steve Erdenwein, and this is the podcast where we are trying to obliterate the Western myth that dreams mean nothing by offering story after human story that shows just how meaningful dreams can be and how potently they can shape our lives. Here with me tonight is Lawrence Markworth. He is a Vietnam vet and he has quite the story to tell you tonight about how dreams have been instrumental in helping him heal his wartime PTSD and just his trauma, the way he's been working his trauma in general with his dreams it's been instrumental in his healing process. And 
I am personally so incredibly grateful that you're here tonight and are willing to share your story with us here tonight. I think it is going to be really, really impactful for our listeners. And my hope is that it'll be really impactful for uh, all the other soldiers and warrior brothers out there who may be really seeking or yearning for some kind of practice in their life that can help them with what they're what they're going through uh so yeah big thank you for coming on here and sharing your story with us i'm really glad to be here i i have the same desires you do i hope that this can help others finally come home and uh help them uh heal from their ptsd I know it's taken me a long time and a lot of work, but it, it's paid off. I've, I've dedicated much of my time. I'm retired. I retired 20 years ago. And about 13 years ago, I uh, started a 12-step group. And, and I started also uh, dream work at uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute with uh, Steve Eisenstadt. What had happened was I... Uh, maybe 25 years ago, maybe a little longer, I took a, uh, a uh, the Artist Way class. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I, I never thought I was creative at all. And one of the things Julie Cameron has you do, you know, art, the Artist Way, in case you don't know, it's, it's a, a way of releasing your artistic creativity. And it's built on the 12-step method. Julie Cameron was a, a screenwriter in LA and she was very successful, but she didn't feel she could write unless she had a buzz going. And uh, she was worried that eventually it would kill her. So she decided that she would get sober and she was she feared that she would lose her creative ability. Well, she didn't. And wow. so when it did all this work for her, she you know, developed this course called The Artist's Way. So I took the artist way, and one of the things she, she, uh, the artist way teaches is the morning pages. And the morning pages, first thing you wake up in the morning is you write down anything, just what whatever comes to your mind before you get a cup of coffee, before you go to the bathroom. You just pick up your <laughs> tablet next to the next to the your uh, on your nightstand, and you start writing longhand. And her her theory is that act of moving your hand across the page does a uh, really strange connection with your brain and all this creativity starts to flow out. So all this stuff started coming out and uh, saying, wow, this is really amazing. So I wasn't a very good writer at the time. I, in fact, I feared writing. So I thought, well, you know, the best way to write is in um, a poet, poet, poetry form, you know, because it's the shortest. Well, it's probably one of the most difficult, but I didn't know that at the time. So I started writing <laughs> I started writing poems and one day I realized I was sitting thinking where are these things coming from and then I finally made the connection these are my dreams I'm having these dreams and mm. I'm writing them down in the morning pages and then wow. now I'm writing poems from them so um, then I got into writing I wanted to write a uh, well I, I really wanted to write a biography of my grandfather which morphed into a story about me and my grandmother. And 
I got to the point where there was all the only person that knew that all the facts that had happened was my mother and my mother was getting dementia. And so I would ask her what happened here? What happened there? And she just get all flustered and I kept doing it. And finally, one day I realized you are torturing your mother. You're <laughs> never going to know what really happened. So just make it a novel. So I made up the parts I didn't know. So I wrote this novel called The Lost of Face, which is based on my life and my grandmother's life. And it goes back in time covering my grandmother's life and my life. I was hugely influenced by my grandmother. She moved in with us when I was seven. And at, at that time, and I think around four, it's weird. I, I was having, you know, I used to think the connection to my nightmares was the trauma caused by my grandmother. But the more in this recent writing I've done, I just sent something to Steve and I, uh, a chapter from my memoir, and I made this connection that no, I was having these nightmares before this trauma with my grandmother, and I'll, I'll go into that trauma. But yeah, so let me I, let me frame okay. this real quick for listeners. Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I guess to just uh, slow it down a little bit, and uh, so Lawrence. When he was young, he started having these really intense nightmares. Uh, he sent me this chapter from his memoir. It was really intense. Um, and, yeah, so you had a, a really difficult relationship is probably a nice way to say it with your grandmother. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so you thought all your trauma or these nightmares were coming from the trauma you suffered from your relationship with her. But now you're realizing that it actually was happening before. Is that right? That's correct. It was happening before. And I made the connection. I know this is a big leap, but I, this is something I really believe is true. So I have had, I've had dreams about wars that are in the future. And I've had dreams about wars that are in, in the past. I've had a World War One dream where, you know, I was in a machine gun nest. The enemy was charging us. And, uh, my machine gun jammed and they came over the wire into the trench and I was in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the, with the enemy. And when the enemy was about to get me, that's when I woke up. Wow. I've had dreams where I've been uh, on a planet where this another alien lands and we're, he starts chasing us and he's, he's, he's more powerful than we are and he wipes everybody else out and I'm running he's after me and uh, again it's you know when it push comes to shove when it gets really terrifying then Psyche usually wakes me up and that's what happened this guy <laughs> so, was he was he was you couldn't defeat him in, in this dream he wiped out everybody except me and wow. there was no way we could defeat him so I just said, I got, you know, if I want to live, I got to run. So that's what I did. And then before he got me, I woke up. Wow. So, so were, th were these dreams before you went to war or were these? No, these were after, okay. after I went to war. But oh, wow. the, the connection though that I made, I've also, so I also not only did dream work, but I got, I was uh, on vacation. I don't know. Before I retired, no, after I retired, you know, within the last 15 years. 
in Panama. I had an artist friend who retired there, and we, we were at Airbnb, and I met we met this couple, and he was talking about this uh, past lives regression with this Newton is his last name called. Uh, the Newton Institute. So I looked up when I got back, I finally read, I bought the book. I never did anything with it, it's out of my shelf. I read the book and then I I went on the, the website, the Newton Institute, and I found a past life regression analyst here in locally, you know, in the next town over. And we did a past life regression. And in that past life regression, which is like, I, I liken it, to conscious dreaming, which I'll talk about later. But basically, you're awake, but you're in a, a dream state. I guess you would, you could equate it to hypnosis. Mm-hmm. So she's taking me through these steps. I'm laying on my couch here in my office, and she's here talking me through it. And we do this whole thing where she, you know, you enter the right space, and I get down there and I. I'm in this space and I open my eyes and I look down. I have sandals on. I have a spear and a shield. I'm a Greek warrior. And, uh, and they goes, I went through this whole lifetime of a Greek warrior with her. And the session was probably about an hour and a half. So I've written, that's a chapter in, that I, in my, you know, my, uh, memoir that I'm working on. The uh, working title is, rowing through a sea of rubble, a sailor's journey home. Uh, so I wrote this chapter up. It's, his name's I Am Serious. That's the, or my, my name is Serious. That was my name in the dream. Hmm. So then I had another, uh, another past life regression um, session with uh, another woman I met in a dream group. She's in, we were in Italy visiting her. And I, same thing, you know, we go through this and I'm a, I'm a warrior. I'm a, I'm, I'm the, I'm the son of an African chief pre-slavery, pre-slavery Africa, where basically I'm a warrior. My father dies. I, you know, I inherit the chief of the tribe and another tribe invades us. They're overpowering. My brothers want to fight them. I say, we need to leave. We need to relocate. We'll never beat them. So that's what we do. The brothers stay. They die. I take, I save the tribe. And then at the end, it's I'm, my old age, you know, this old African guy with white hair on my deathbed and whole, my whole family's around me. They know when I'm dying and they're wishing me luck into the next life. Wow. So with those experiences, the dream experiences and the past life regression, I think those dreams I had as a child, which were, all these monsters were trying to get me. I, I really think those were the enemies I met in my past life. I don't uh, know where else. I have no other explanation yeah. for where, the, where those dreams could come from because, you know, as far as I can recall, you know, my mother and father were great. I didn't have any trauma in my life till my grandmother came into, you know, mm. to live with us when I was seven. So then the dreams became more specific to her although i can't really recall them but i had plenty of them later you know about my grammar so my grammar was a the abusive alcoholic mm-hmm. and she uh used to slap me around yell and scream at me especially when my parents weren't home 
my theory is that you know her her husband abandoned her for a younger woman. God knows what, her, what happened to her with her father. She was in a lot of pain. Yeah, a lot of pain, and and I was the the undefensible male in the family, so she took out all her hatred and aggression on me. So I hated her. I hated her with everything, all with a passion. And uh, it wasn't until I began to write this novel about her and me that I forgave her. You know, she, my grandmother was, she loved to read. And so what happened when I was 13 on Christmas Day, this was 1958, she, uh, she had two dogs and she lived in back of the house. So the dogs attacked her. She felt she passed out in her chair and the dogs attacked her for whatever reason. Uh-huh. We never really knew. And they took off uh, her nose, her upper lip, her eye and her eye socket. So essentially she looked like a monster and she lived another nine years. Wow. And, and, and that even, she just redoubled her efforts with alcohol. So at that point, though, the physical abuse stopped because one day I just stood up to her when I was 12 and realized I was, you know, a head taller than her. Yeah. And I, I just went berserk, you know, <laughs> like, I, like the, you know, like the Greek god Ares, the god of war. He's, he's the berserker. He's the Lieutenant Cowley in Vietnam where, you know, they wiped out the whole village. You know, his whole guys just went crazy and wiped out the village. So that's that's Ares, you know, his, his the god of war. He loves war, he loves violence, and he goes berserk. And that's what I did with my grandmother. And I yelled at her. I said, "If you ever touch me again, I'm going to smash you in the face." Wow. And the the physical that the physical abuse stopped, but the, the verbal abuse didn't. That's so tragic. Uh, I you know, I think most people just imagine grandmothers as these kind of like fairy tale grandmothers. I can't imagine having a monstrous one that's <laughs> so horrible Man. yeah but you know there's for me there's a happy ending for her i hope so too you know she yeah. she died uh a year after i got out of Viet, uh, got you know left vietnam and then got discharged she died in a fire so she, again she was still an alcoholic we had left the house I grew up in. You know, we lived in an apartment. She lived in an apartment yeah, a couple of blocks away. She was drinking one night, reading the newspaper. She passed out. Back back in the day, you know, there were flow, floor furnaces. You know, the heat, the gas heat came out of the floor. There's just a big square iron, you know, grid, you know, metal grid in the floor where the heat came out of. And it was next to her chair. She passed out. Newspaper fell on it, smoldered all night. She asphyxiated. Oh man! And uh, when she died, I thought all my problems would be over. Well, of course, they weren't. Yeah. But uh, but later, she was like I was saying, she was this big lover of books, and so I'm writing the novel. I'm going. She wouldn't go out in public. I'm covering the period when, you know, I was 16 or 17. I used to go to the li- drive to the library, walk to the library for her, and check out books for her. She wouldn't go out in public because she she did. She looked like a monster. And I would, so I'm writing this chapter about how I'd do all these books and bring them back to her. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, you know, that was my career. I was, for 32 years, I was a librarian. And I said, oh my God, 
She's the reason I'm a librarian. Wow. And and that's the point. I mean, I was at the keyboard writing the story, the tears running down my face, and I forgave her. Wow. I, I said, oh, because I begin then I began to see all the positive. When she was sober, yeah. she was brilliant. She was really a nice person, but that wasn't very you know, most of the time she was drunk. It's a tragic story. But yeah. anyway, that forgiving her just lifted this huge weight off my shoulders. Huge yeah. weight that I yeah. carried for years. I mean, that was maybe 15 years ago that I forgave her. So from the time I was seven to the time, you know, I'm in my mid-60s, I carried this hatred with me. That's no way to travel the world. That's no way to be in life. You know, yeah. to carry that hatred, and so it did. It weighted, lifted a huge weight off my shoulders. Yeah. Wow. So this is such a beautiful reconciliatory moment, and it reminds me so much of the moment of forgiveness that I have for my father in the father wound episode that we did in season one. And just like here, where he realizes that the reason why he became a librarian is because he was constantly going to the library to get books for his grandmother. And it redeems so much for him because of the joy that he got out of his long career as a librarian. Just in the same way that when I realized that I write the depth of music that I do, because of how I saw as a young kid that music reached in and really touched and affected my father. And my perceived lack of support for my father was fully redeemed in this moment where I realized it's because of him that I even cared to try to write the depth of music that I do. And that I wanted to try to create that same kind of experience of revealing people's true selves to themselves through music and and it just like rocked my heart in such a way that I, I could see him clear now and I could see the value and the beauty that he offered my creative expression that I thought that he didn't support and in reverse when I shared this epiphany with him I feel like it also allowed him to see me and my desire to create music in a way that he could relate to and that made it important and special to him. And it really shifted everything for the two of us. It's, it's been so beautiful. And so I guess I have a few questions for any of you out there who are struggling with one of the members of your family. Why does it really hurt that I don't receive the love from them that I wish I did? Who have I become in response? And where is the beauty in who I've become that I can contribute back to them? What is the gift in their own way that they have given me that has made me who I am in such a way that I wouldn't have become otherwise? 
but you know, I'm trying to say, I don't, I really don't dream about her anymore. You know, since I started doing the dream work mm-hmm. and did a lot of work with her therapy, dream work, uh, writing, I don't dream about her, about her anymore, which is really good for me because they were all, <laughs> some of them were really terrifying. Yeah. I can, I, I, I can share one about her, a dream. Yeah, sure. So I probably had this dream uh, 15 years ago. It was probably the time, about the time I was working on the not one of the time I was heavily into the novel. In the dream, I'm uh, uh, I'm a I'm a fisherman, you know, in real life, and <laughs> dream life too. I dream a lot about fishing. <laughs> I have a lot of dreams in fishing, but they're usually they're not pleasant because something's going wrong, and that's what happened in this dream. Something went wrong. So I'm a, I'm a young I'm a kid in the, the Sierras, the, you know, the, the mountains of California. And uh, I'm in a, this beautiful meadow. And there's a stream running down it. And I have this little tiny, almost toy-like fishing rod. And I open my tackle box. And I only have this one huge lure, like, you know, maybe six inches long. And I'm thinking, this is impossible. This is a trout stream, you know. So I toss it in. The lure, I see that lure sinking, sinking. It goes out of sight, and all of a sudden, bam! You know, I get this huge bite. So it takes off on this little reel, and I'm trying to hold on, and I'm running up the stream, and then all of a sudden it stops, and then the fish starts swimming, turns and swimming towards me and up, you know, out of the depths. And I'm reeling as fast as I can, and I look, and it's this giant fish, maybe five feet long, with the face of my disfigured grandmother. Oh my gosh. So I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. She comes to the surface and she swims right out of the surface into the air. I drop my rod. I start running. She catches up to me. She says, Lawrence, stop. So I stop. I turn around. I'm facing her. I mean, I mean we're face to face. This big lure is hanging out of her lip. I can smell her the alcoholic stench of her breath. And she says, Lawrence, take this lure out of my mouth. So I take it out and she yells, how how did you expect to subdue me on this little tiny rod? And she goes, ha, ha. And she turns around, she swims back into the depths. And there we go. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And was that after you forgave her? Huh, that's a good question. You know, I'd have to go back to my dream journals. Mm-hmm. It was probably, I don't know, maybe, you know, it may have been before. That may have been part of my forgiveness, you know. Yeah. Because all the, although the dream was terrifying, you know, I guess, you know, on the surface, it was telling me that, you know, my struggle was Herculean against her. Mm-hmm. And in the one, in, in the end, though, if you want to look at it, winners and losers, I'm the winner. She's the loser, unfortunately, you know, with that tragic death. But, you know, I have to think about have I, how I should look it up. I, I see a dream therapist once a month that I met at Pacifica and he 
Ken's dreams, just like Steven Eisenstadt done. He was mm-hmm. one of his, Steven Eisenstadt was his mentor. And uh, we, we tended that dream. I just can't remember right off the top of my head. So I was able to ask Lawrence to go back and look in his journals to find out if this was before or after he forgave her. And he said that it was before. And I just think this dream is is so beautiful and so poignant. It's it's basically telling him, you got to let this go, man. In her words, like, you can't subdue all of this pain and anger and hatred that you have surrounding all the the abuse and trauma that you suffered at her hand. Like, trying to hold on to it and fight it and and wrestle with it. I think there's so many great visual images there of struggling to deal with the pain. And that you really have to just let it go. So what, what you do in uh, Eisenstadt's method is not so much what does that dream mean. I think I talked about this in my that yeah. chapter I sent you. What does this dream mean? But what is the image trying to tell you? Yeah. And so if you so when you re-enter the dream with a dream tender or a therapist, that's what you're doing between you and the tender, this person who's helping you tend this dream, you decide on what image they're gonna tend. And then if it's a terrifying image like that dream, you bring in your 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 dream figures, these figures that you your allies that you've made over the years. Mm-hmm. And many of these allies, the strongest allies come from the scariest nightmares. Because when you can uh, come to peace with that terrifying image, then you'll find that that terrifying image, which is really part of your own psyche reflecting back to you, is so helpful yeah. on, and, and, and helping you heal. So what? So I, I had developed a few of them. One of those was Mother Elephant. And the same thing it was a terrifying dream where she comes in and we her baby wanders into this African compound we're in and we're trying to get the baby out and she comes storming in. She's furious, hmm. just trying to get her child back. And, uh-huh. you know, I yelled to somebody, get the elephant gun. And, you know, she comes storming into the main room and I pick up the gun and I don't shoot her. And she sees her child, escorts her, her the little elephant out and then leaves us alone. Wow. So I've worked with her and she's she's a huge I call her mother elephant. She's a huge protector of me. Oh, and I, I can conjure her up in waking life. One time I was at a dream, you know, Robert Moss is one of the other dream teachers I've worked with. He's a an Australian uh, he's an expat. He lives here in the United States in the upstate New York. And I've uh, been to several of his uh, his seminars. Um, oh, yeah, most people listening to this podcast should know who he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty amazing, amazing guy. Although one of the you know these these guys that do this, they all have huge egos. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry they do. I don't think Steve Eisenstein or Robert Moss going to want to like hearing this, but no, you know they may say, you know, yes, I have a huge ego, but they're br- they're brilliant. 
They're brilliant. <laughs> they are, but they, they got big egos. Maybe maybe that's part and parcel of doing the work. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, um, so what was I was talking about? The, Real quick, uh, can I say uh, sure. I, I really love uh, I love what you're saying about taking really hard dream images and as you as you work with that image it it does become an ally and i just i think there's such a marvelous amount of power and like inner i mean inner strength is probably a weird word to put against it but it yeah once once they're on your team like all of that energy that was terrifying fearful and felt like it was coming at you is now like with you <laughs> right right and it's with really it. it's a really phenomenal process it's really phenomenal and not and i have a above my computer in my I, my office i have a shelf in the middle of the shelf is my altar and on it i actually have right now i have one two three four four icons of elephants Mm. You know, because she is such a powerful uh, uh, protector for me. So whenever I go into a dream that's frightening, I always bring her with me. She's got my back, you know. You know, there's an old uh, World War One saying, so we've, we've got your six, which means when the pilots, when they first started flying pilot, uh, you know, warplanes in World War One the you know the place that, that was most vulnerable was straight behind them six o'clock mm-hmm. and so the other pilots would tell them we've got your six meaning we got your back nice. and uh, mother elephant has my six she has my yeah. back yeah and, oh, yeah and and waking life too i can bring her in yeah so the story i was telling i was at the robert moss uh seminar and uh oh that was a really weird one it was in france and i was it was it's a beautiful setting and there was this dirt road that went down into a valley nobody hardly there was farmers down there but there were wild pigs wild boars there so one evening you know the sun's going down and i'm I'm a runner and i was going down there for a run and i heard them rustling in the trees and i'm thinking you know i'm down here did i tell anybody i was going down here what if something happens to me you know down here now the wild pig's going to get me and so i just conjured up other elephant and i mean it I could literally hear her running behind me, and mm. I said, "Okay, I'm I'm okay now. She's got my back." I one had a really things- interesting experience, kind of similar to that one time where I was, I was doing a job where I was a wedding DJ, and I was I just started doing it, working for a company, and they had all of their uh, DJ equipment in the storage unit in St. Paul, and uh, they they encouraged us to go spend some time there and, and play around with the equipment before they just threw you into the hot water there. Yeah. So I was there one day just practicing using the equipment, and I had the storage door wide open and was playing music and whatnot. And uh, this homeless man walked up, and he started asking me about the equipment and started acting really kind of shady and getting a little bit aggressive with me. Um, he had first started asking me if, uh, if he could, if he could work with me that night and 
Um, I was like, well, I, I'm not like the boss. I don't really have money to pay you. And I was like, I don't know if they would be okay with that. You know, I'm trying to talk my way around it. And he, he just continued to get a little bit more aggressive and I could just feel my energy shrinking in the conversation. Yeah. And I was getting a little terrified because there's nobody around. And here I am backed into the corner of this storage unit and there's probably thousands of dollars worth of audio equipment in this place. And I, right as I'm feeling like really overpowered, uh, I think I'm going to call in a few of the animals that I'm, I work with, with my dreams. And I asked for them to stand with me and it was the first time I'd ever done this and I haven't had to do it since. So I don't, I don't know if this would be the same experience. I don't know if something was just really looking out for me that day, but I couldn't believe it. Like within seconds, like he started shrinking and backing away (laughs) and just looking at me all perplexed and confused. Like what the hell just happened here? Um, And he, he literally walked away and I was just like so baffled. He definitely (laughs) definitely felt the power. He felt that power. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't believe how well I could feel it in that moment. It was, it was so wild. And I, I never forgot that. And I, I say that I haven't had to use it, but if I'm walking late at night down a street that I don't know, I ask for them to walk with me and I, I haven't had a confrontation like that where they've really had to be there, but I know that I feel better. <laughs> when I when I call them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, man. You know, one of the things that Steve Eisenstadt teaches, and I think it's one of, one of the best things I've ever learned from him, is that, you know, so when you're tending a dream and then he's asking you about, you know, what's the, what's the figure telling you? And, you know, he always talks usually, and so does uh, Doug Thomas is the, uh, the dream analyst I use. You know, I, I meet with him on Zoom once a month. Um, and they always say, it's usually the first thing, and my therapist says the same thing when I did EMDR therapy, the first thing that comes into your mind, that's, you know, that's what you go with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes you say, oh, come on, I'm just making this shit up, you know. But <laughs> one of the things that Steve says about it is that you need, when you're doing dream work, you need to suspend disbelief. Mm, yeah. and that's a real key. Not to deny those things. Trust your intuition when these images come to you and when they begin to speak to you. Trust your intuition. And and, and I don't think you can go wrong when you do that. So you do have to spend disbelief because this is, you know, goes against the grain of rational thinking. Mm-hmm. It does. And and that, that's, you know, a lot of what your show is about, right? This yeah. pushback. On, on the Western world about this kind of stuff. Although I think it's beginning to loosen up in a lot of ways in medicine to the pushback on, yeah. you know, Oh, it's all numbers. It's all rational. And we've got the studies, you know, just follow these directions. You're going to be fine. Well, you know, we all know that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think this suspending disbelief in the dream work and the stuff is done wonders for my PTSD yeah. a lot more than the drugs. I will. I only take, I take one drug right now, Wellbutrin for depression. And you know what? I'm such a good space. I should try to see what happens when I, 
they should try stopping it. I was off it for a while, but um, I, I do. I notice that when I'm off of it, I I can tend to when I start to slide, mm-hmm. go into a deeper depression without it. Yeah. But there's more than drugs to deal with depression and anxiety and PTSD and you know trauma. Believe me, there's a lot more modalities that are much more efficient. Yeah. Well, it actually addresses the issue instead of just band-aiding over it. That's right. Exactly. So I think, uh, yeah, if we could get up to, let's get into a little bit of uh, how, I guess, if you could lead us up to you enlisting into Vietnam. and Sure. Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I've discovered in my memoir writing and working with uh, uh, Ed Tick, you know, who's a psychologist who's worked with vets for 40 years, especially started with Vietnam vets, you know, and about PTSD. Um, one of the things, uh, lost my train of thought here. Where was I now? Uh, and <laughs> why I joined. Oh, warrior, warrior. That's the thing. Sorry. Um, uh, the idea of a warrior, I've always been a warrior. And in the writing and in veterans work, I've uncovered that. That when I was a kid, when I was four years old, is all I wanted was a toy gun. And so there's a picture of me looking a little lost four-year-old with this toy six gun in my hand. And then we would play, you know, our whole, in, you know, neighborhood kids. You know, most of us were boys and we pay, you know, war all the time. Mm. You know, bang, you're dead. No, you didn't, you didn't shoot me. Yes, you did. You know? <laughs> and yeah. we'd all have either bats or toy guns or everything as weapons. Then, um, uh, let's see, that was at four and playing with kids. So at seven, about the time my grandmother moved in because we expanded our house and we added two rooms. So my parents said, what color do you want your room? What color schemes? I said, I want a red floor, bright blue walls, a white ceiling. Well, you know, it was the American flag. I was mm-hmm. gun ho at seven. I was gun ho. <laughs> and I, dec- I decorated it with pictures of Navy and Air Force and Army Fighters, jets and props, you know, they were all bombers and fighters. So, you know, I was a warrior, but I never really realized that. So uh, I I hated high school. I really struggled with high school. My savior was auto shop and an auto shop teacher who took an interest in my talent. And um, so I graduate and my friends, many of my friends were going, they were going to go live in Hawaii and surf, or they were going to go to college. Or, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had one buddy, we said, okay, let's, let's look. And we said, let's, let's look. We had a little sense then at 18, 17, 18. Let's look at the Navy or the Air Force because we weren't particularly interested in the Marines or the Army. Mm-hmm. We really weren't particularly interested in, you know, being in combat. Yeah. So we chose the Navy. And uh, 
this what had the, the final thing for me. It was during the Cuban Missile Crisis when you know we almost went to World War III with the Russians. Mm-hmm. We, they had we discovered they had weapons in Cuba. Yeah. So uh, you know went in a showdown. So basically, at that time, I thought I joined the Navy to help save. To, to serve my country and help save the world from communism. And that's what I really thought. Well, you know, later, especially with all this work I've done, part of the reason I joined the Navy because I wasn't safe at home. I still, even though I had defended myself against my family, she still terrorized, terrified yeah. me. So I wasn't safe at home. So I go into military, which is kind of a joke. Going to military, basically, you know, at wartime, you know, it was like, it was... It seemed like the end of the world. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody that you know lived in that period. What happened when all that was coming down? People thought we were going to go to nuclear war. Monday, October 22nd, day seven. As huge mobilization and deployment were taking place, Kennedy broke the news to the American people and announced his chosen course of action. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. They were, I had friends at work in grocery stores, they said women were fighting over cans of food. The, the shelves were stripped bare. People were hunkered down. They were, you know, but what are you going to do? Nothing, you know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're going to, we're all going to be wiped out for sure. <laughs> there's, not, there's not much we can do if it happens. Yeah. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm going to go help my country to find, uh, fight against communism. Help stop the spread of communism. So, you know, I guess when I think about that, I ended up in the right place. You know, Offshore Vietnam, that's what we were doing. At least that's what I believed we were doing. Mm-hmm. I really believed it. All during my enlistment, I believed it. And But it was, uh, you know, I was physically abused in boot camp. That was a real betrayal to me. You know, I left home because I didn't want abuse. I get there, you know, on the parade ground marching and did some wrong move and and then instead of the, you know, company commander, you know, the uh, boot camp trainer, it was a uh, chief petty officer, instead of just saying, Mark, with this, you know, you made a mistake there, you should do this, you know, stops the whole troop and tells me, Mark, on a left oblique, you start off in your right foot. And every word he said, on a left oblique, he, he punched me in the jaw at each word. Uh-huh. And I, it hurt, you know, and I, I just I just couldn't understand that, that physical punishment, it, mm-hmm. which is, to me, it was uncalled for. 
Yeah. So that was a that was a huge letdown. Actually, when I got off the bus and my friend and I got off the bus in San Diego, we we you know got sworn in in L.A. and took the bus to San Diego. As soon as you get off the bus, hey, you piece of shit, you know, yelling and screaming at you. And I, I remember him and I looking at each other. What the fuck have we done? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So then, so I, one of the reasons I joined was they offered me nuclear subschool. And, you know, you'd sign up for four years. And if you got into nuclear subschool, which is three years of education before you had to go to sea, and then three years, you know, deployed on a sub. And so I said, well, you know, let's do it. I signed up for it. I didn't, I just, I missed it for four. I didn't extend my enlistment because I tested out everything. I even tested out for naval air, but there was one little glitch that the recruiter didn't tell me about, that you had to have perfect vision. You had to have 20-20 glasses, 20-20 mm-hmm. vision. And he saw the Coke bottle glasses I had. Yeah. You know, and that was a, that was another betrayal, I felt. Yeah. You know, so anyway, they uh, I became an electrician mate. So the first ship I was assigned to was a supply ship and... Uh, uh, home ported out of uh, Yokosuka, Japan. Later, when, when it got really hot down there after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, when we, when we started, that's when Johnson started bombing North Vietnam, August 64. We moved to uh, 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 a port on the southernmost island, Kyushu, of uh, the name Sasebo was the port. And uh, so we would spend, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks in Japan we take off with the supplies, go off and supply the fleet in this little imaginary triangle they called Yankee Station, which was in the South China Sea, offshore Vietnam. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of weird shit happened. We, had, uh, we were in a collision at sea. That was wow. scary. Yeah, luckily, we got lucky there. Our, we were alongside the destroyer. We, this was actually during the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Supposedly, we were only nine miles away. And our captain, who was, uh, this was his first ship command. He was a flyboy, you know, an aviator, naval aviator, and he went through the ranks. He was a dick. He was a jerk. <laughs> and so when, the, when these patrol boats allegedly attacked these destroyers, he radioed the admiral and said, you know, can we start shelling, you know, North Vietnam? <laughs> Admiral had at least somebody had some sense in the chain of command. So get the hell out of there, you know. <laughs> Our top speed was ten knots. A patrol boat would have sank us easy, you know. Yeah. So what happened when we started heading home? Well, there was this patrol in the what they called the Taiwan Patrol. There are always there was always a destroyer between the island of Taiwan and the mainland. Isn't this interesting? This whole thing with Taiwan is going on now. It was going on then. This is sixty four was going on then so Mm. since the whole fleet was down there off you know in yankee station the destroyer didn't have uh, it needed fuel and there was no oiler out there to give them fuel that's what oilers do they supply fuel and so our skipper says oh we can give them our fuel well you know oilers they have these big you know six eight inch lines we had a little three inch line so we put it over the side you know we're giving them fuel. We're alongside them for nine hours. They wow. lost their steering. They lost their steering engine. And the first thing they did was they they broke away. The fuel line breaks. There's fuel everywhere. The cables pop. 
then they came back in and they hit us. And um, luckily, we were down in the water and they were up. And they hit us where our barbershop was and they knocked a hole. I would say it was about six feet by 10. Now, if we would have been up and they would have been down and that was below our water line, we would have been in deep shit. Yikes. Yeah, it would have. And I remember, <laughs> they, you know, the, when they break away, they sounded the, the alarm for a collision. And, you know, I ran behind, I was down in the engine room, ran behind the, the switchboard, and then they hit us again, and all oh, this paint and shit comes flying off the wall, and it was just terrifying. Wow. Dropping like that. Anyway, we were, we were lucky. But you know what? I'll take that any day than being, <laughs> than, than being in, in combat. Those yeah. guys, those guys in combat, they have paid dearly. And I'll, I won't compare myself to a combat that they have paid a lot, hell of a price. Yeah. You know, and I, they have so much courage and I, I honor them there and they've gone through hell. You know, it's been tough. Yeah. Been tough. Absolutely. Yeah, what was the other thing? We, we, uh, during around that same time, a naval aviator was shot down. Uh, we were in the area where his plane went down. So we began a search. They, they asked all ships in that area to search and we found him. So we see him off in the distance, bobbing in the water. Oh my God, he's alive, you know? So they launch a whaleboard off to get him and they bring him back. We don't, you know, here we're up, up on deck, those of us that weren't on watch. And they bring him, and we see they got him wrapped up. He's he's dead. And yes. they, as soon as we saw that, you could have heard a pin drop. We were, you know, we were stopped in the water. You could have heard a pin drop in that ship. Uh-huh. Just the silence. And they hosted him aboard. And you know, it was sad. Yeah. It, was, it was sad. That's the first death I saw from the war. Again, those guys in combat they saw it every day mm-hmm. I, I don't know i i don't think i could have survived that i don't know how they did they did that yeah. um yeah that's brilliant. so you know that but the the real issue i had i'm hoping before i go to my this two-year deployment and i didn't know it was going to be two years most ships would spend you know six months in that west coast home port and then Six pack, uh, six months in Westpac, the Western Pacific, you know, and, and and rotate back and forth. Well, we didn't. We were so I was deployed for two years, uh-huh. and not coming home for two years. Before I was deployed, I was home on leave, and my uh, my father had heart issues, and my uh, so one morning I hear this crash. I was supposed to leave in a week. I hear this crash. I run into. My parents' bedroom. I, I'm 18, and my father's lying on the floor and he's not breathing. My sister and my mother yell at me to do something, so I do CPR on him. And I, I thought I was doing. I thought he was breathing, but it was just me blowing air in his mouth. His, my air coming back. The firemen come, and uh, this is another suspend disbelief story. The firemen come. They're working on him. They ask me to leave the room. I'm sitting out in the living room. And I hear my father, like he was sitting next to me. He says, Lawrence, everything is going to be okay. So I jump up. Oh, he's alive. I run in there, and they're covering his body and his face. He's dead. 
And the doc says, no, he probably, you know, died before he hit the floor. Oh. You know, and uh, I said, no, no, he just talked to me. <laughs> no, Man. no, he was gone. So, you know, as his soul was leaving his body, he told me everything was going to be okay. And it was oh. 11 years later. And, you know, basically when I met my wife, that was a big turnaround for my life. I yeah. went through some really tough times. Well, that's like I say, I don't know how I could have survived because, you know, I was close to, I was suicidal. And I wanted to end my life. I don't know how those guys in combat can yeah. deal with it, really. Yeah, I, I, I don't sure. think I could have, I, you know, I don't think I could have dealt with it if I was in combat. But I, I, you know, I feel the I, same way. There's no way. <laughs> so, so I leave a week later, my father's funeral, you know, and and I thought I did something wrong in the CPR, you know, and I carried I carried that for 30 years that I, uh, you know, I was responsible for my father's death. Well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, but it was all the therapy and the writing and the dream work and everything that finally realized, you know, I did everything I could. And if I would have just stood there, then I really would have been in trouble. You know, and he would have died. I would have said, you just stood there and then your father died. Why didn't yeah. you do something? Well, I, I did do something. Right. So. Yeah, it's so easy for us, even if we can talk our way around situations like that, to, to really carry the burden of it for a long yeah. time. Yeah. So here I go. I'm with all this guys I'd never met before. I didn't know how to grieve. So what I did, it was I drank every time I went on shore and I found a prostitute. I did that for two years. Mm. When I wasn't, you know, when I wasn't at sea and I had leave and I wasn't on a watch, we were in port, I was drunk and I was with a prostitute. And that was my way of dealing with the trauma. The childhood mm. trauma, the trauma of losing my father, the trauma of being you know deployed for two years and, you know not being able to go home shipboard life you know it was not not real fun being yeah. on a, a, some old you know rust bucket freighter with 250 other guys you know <laughs> you know the only rooms that had ac were the rooms that had electronics in them so it was hot miserable wow. but i met some great friends there really good friends in fact that's my theory about why i went off the deep end when i got out you know, when I became suicidal because I didn't have my band of brothers. Yeah. It's really, it's only it's only been since I started working with Ed Tech that I realized that the band that band of brothers, you know, they got your back. You may not like the guy you're working <laughs> next to, but you know, you know, he has right. your back. And you know, time and time again, we have all these fire drills and real fires. You know. We all knew what to do, and we do it. We depended on one another, and we, you know, and we did, and we, we did our job. We kept that old rust bucket afloat. Yeah, I think that's, 
That's what I hear from a lot of my friends who went to Iraq and Afghanistan is that you come home and you would have this really intense experience where you had people that you knew had your back like that. Yep. And it was so, I don't know, that just the way they talked about it and the way you just talked about it, I mean, that feels so wildly beautiful and uh, huge. I mean, I don't know why most men in general can't form strong brotherhoods or like yeah. brothership it's, it's with diffi- people. It's difficult for men. You know, I got this, you know, no yeah. tears. I can handle this. Right. But so then the bullshit. <laughs> I know exactly. Yeah, it just seems like all of them have echoed to me in some way or, or form that when they get back to civilian life, uh, they're not surrounded by people that they know have their back like that, or or can even yep. relate. And it it's so isolating. And yeah, yes. And for me, I didn't realize that that was part of the problem. Yeah. You know? So I went searching then, you know, I was searching for things and, but I was searching in all the wrong places with mm-hmm. sometimes the wrong people, you know, drugs, it was still drugs and alcohol and women only, that was the free love era. So I didn't have to pay for it. No. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, until I found the right person. You know? Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I found, I had another girlfriend. So I was, I met a girlfriend and my mother she saw what mess I was in when I came back and, and then, you know, and then my grandmother died. So that didn't help. And she kept, she was in the Unitarian church. My mother was an atheist. So she kept pushing me, Lawrence, there's a youth group there. Go join, join, join. So just to get her off my back, I said, okay, I'll try it. And I liked it. And I met a young woman there hmm. and we hit it off and we ended up moving in together. And then I, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to handle intimacy. And so I ran and I went to Tucson where I had a friend that I served with on both ships. I was on first on USS Castro's supply ship. And then my second ship was the USS Tawasa Ocean Going Tug out of San Diego and Craig Buchanan. He was on that first ship and then he showed up on the second ship. Just because I know some people like these details, his voice was a little muffled when he just told the ships that he was on. Uh, the first ship that he served on that went to Vietnam was called the USS Castor. And the second ship that he was on was the USS Tawasa, an ocean-going tug homeported in San Diego. Really wanted to make sure that those were crystal clear, especially since the Castor plays a pretty instrumental role in a dream that he has coming up pretty quick. And so I'm, and then he, we both got out and I joined him in Arizona and trying to run away from, I don't know what, you know, I didn't know, I couldn't handle the intimacy that my girlfriend was trying to show me. I just didn't know how to deal with it since I didn't get a lot of it from my mother and my grandmother. Yeah. So I go there and then I come back and then I, Linda and I move in and then find, but all this time, drugs and alcohol, sex, I'm trying to suppress those feelings and I become really depressed and then suicidal and I'm trying to figure out how I'm, you know, if this is what life's going to be, I don't want to live it. Yeah. So I finally had the courage. So when I moved back to LA, I finally had the courage to tell my girlfriend. So I was 20, 
three then. She was 18. I met her when she was 17. She, she was still in high school when I met her. Uh, so she was 18 or 19, and I was 23 or 24. And I confided in her and said, Linda, I, I can't go on this way. There's just no way. I, I have a plan to take my life. I was going to, I had a course of speedster. I was going to go down Malibu Canyon. And when the road curved, I wouldn't and drive up the canyon, but I kept thinking, geez, what if I don't die? <laughs> and I'd really be messed up. <laughs> it was still of all my problems, you know. So I shared it with her. And the first thing she said, oh, Larry, you know, you got you to gotta see a therapist. I know exactly a therapist. Let's call him and save my life. I started seeing uh, a therapist for, for three years, and it helped. I didn't get a lot of issues. I didn't get into my addiction back then. I didn't know it. I was an addict. But, uh, but it did save my life. Um, yeah, she was uh, a really special person. Still friends with her, you know, which is really cool. Oh, that's beautiful. I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm, when you just said you were 23, 24, I was just like, holy shit, like we're still only in your early 20s and all of this yep. has happened already. <laughs> like, wow, yeah. man. Yeah, well, that that's Oof. actually, I, I view that as... Uh, very fortunate that all my trauma really happened to me from the time I was seven till the time I met my wife. I was 29. And then once I met her, my life seemed to straighten out. She's Mm. just an amazing person. Just, you know, everything clicked. It was the right person at the right time for me. And we're still together. So we've been together 49 years, married 47 Wow, congratulations. That's impressive. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I I feel so lucky. You know, I mean that you know, we, we ever once in a while we get into our little skirmishes, but we <laughs> we know each other so well that yeah. you know, most of the time she's right and I'm wrong. And I can be pig headed <laughs> and the PTSD can be acting up and, and then I have to say, Ah, Mia culpa, you know, you were right, I was wrong. But I'm I'm used to doing that. She's yeah. used to me doing it. And it's okay. You know, yeah. it's okay because I know she's, you know, she's uh, not only my spouse and lover, but, you know, my friend, and she's got my back, for sure. Absolutely. For sure. You know, That's beautiful. Amazing, amazing human being. I'm so lucky I met her. Well, while we are kind of still okay. on the topic of you struggling with intimacy, sure, I wanted to allow you to maybe tell the story of the woman you met in Japan, if you want to oh, yeah, yeah, back to sure. that. That's, that's a good story. And there's a dream associated with that, too. Yeah. Um, so I'm near the end of my tour, and I have leave left. And so I say, well, shit, you know, I'm not going to spend the rest, last, my last week on the ship. I got leave. I'm going to go, you know, go ashore, and hang one on, you know. So that's what I do. You know, <laughs> go ashore. And I start drinking. And maybe the second day ashore on my leave, I'm outside the enlisted men's club and I see this young girl in a, so this time I'm 20 years old and she's somewhere between 14 and 16. She's in a schoolgirl, traditional schoolgirl uniform, Japanese schoolgirl uniform. It's dirty. She looks like she's been sleeping in it. 
And she, as I'm about ready to end, I look at her, she smiles, I smile back. She walks over to me and she says, you take me club? And I said, uh, sure, what the hell? So we walk into the club and um, she, she says, you have, some, you have coins? I give her some coins. She makes a beeline to the slot machine. So I'm thinking, maybe she's been in there before. And I'm thinking, what, what is she doing? You know, she's, you know, I don't think she's a prostitute. You know, you know, uh, she's a, you know, later on I figured out she was a runaway and she was terrified. And she was just looking for comfort and security and a place to sleep and a meal. So I ended up spending 24 hours with her. Uh, and it was the best 24 hours I had in that two years. It was, we were two lost souls looking for security and comfort and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And although it never turned sexual, not that I didn't want it to, but it, you know, I didn't know the age of consent, and I there was this. I've always had this boundary about you know, she didn't. I tried to make moves on her. She wasn't interested in it, and so I honored her. I'm, and I, that's something I'm always proud of, especially yes. that I'd been drinking and I did that, and I was able to honor her 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 request. Uh, but it was an amazing time. We. We got by on sane sign language, and uh, it was it was cool. But you know, at, I real you know I woke up in the morning. I had passed out. She was uh, uh, in the shower, and then I look at my watch. And, Shit, it's seven hundred, and I got to be back at the ship at eight hundred. You know, my leave is over. And so I said goodbye. She didn't understand it. I ran off, and I felt this. You know, this joy that I had there. You know, I forgot about the death of my father and everything. Just being with a human being that cared about me and I cared about her. And it was a beautiful, beautiful situation. So I've, ri I've written a short story called The Sailor and the Schoolgirl. Actually, a veteran school actually performed it here in L.A. a couple really? of weeks, a couple of year, a year, a year ago. Yeah, wow. two years ago, where an actor read my story. It was so powerful to hear your own words on stage. Oh, my God. It's really cool. <laughs> I bet. Wow. Yeah. So I've, I've written, a, I have a, a chapter in my novel. I've written a novelized version of it, which I go way, way off the deep end. <laughs> but it's basically the same thing, but a little, some other changes is the way it ends. And then I've written a memoir version of it. And, you know, I still think about her all the time. And so that was that kind of, that light in the dark tunnel, you know, that actually I think it really helped me go, keep going to meet yeah. somebody like that, even though we were with only with each other for 24 hours. So I had a dream, let's see if I can find it here very quick, that I had a dream about her 
seven or eight years ago. While you're looking for that, I'll I'll just say uh, I just think moments like that are so haunting, and they really do uh, capture our heart in a certain way that stays with us going forward and really kind of shapes us in their own way. Yeah. Um, that kind of yearning and longing to recapture that kind of feeling, uh, I think is really instrumental in our lives and helping us to, to really try to figure out how to find that again. And it leads us into places that if we didn't have that, we may have never even been looking for it. Yeah. And and so by that, uh, by that happening, I, you know, I knew what it would be like to, to find somebody that really, uh, meant something. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's who I found in my life on the caster in Japan. You know, one of my, good buddies in the electrician gang who's since died of complications from Asian Orange. His name was David Nagai and he was a big he was born a, in a relocation camp in the United States. He was Japanese. His parents were, you know, Japanese and they were thrown into you know, we we would argue, I'd say it's a relocation camp, David. He said, No, it's a prison camp. Well, you know, hmm. he was right. It were prison camps. So he takes me, he drags me to the museum at Ground Zero in Nagasaki. And that was a life-changing event because what I saw there, that was the first, you know, peace, anti-war part of me that came up in the warrior when I saw the destruction from that bomb. It was really bad. And one of the things that I saw was this picture of a destroyed, a flattened Nagasaki with one white tower standing in that white tower was a smokestack. So the dream is, and the dream, the title of, yeah, what, duh, the title of the dream is the title of my memoir, Rowing Through a Sea of Rubble. Rowing Through a Sea of Rubble, uh, I pull at the oars, I work hard. Off in the distance, I see this tower standing and at the base of the tower, I see a young girl. It's Imiko, the Japanese girl. I see a young girl. And so I row harder and harder and harder. I finally land. I row through the rubble. I land on the island where the tower is. The girl had ducked behind the tower. I run and look for, him, for her, and she's gone. That's the dream. And that was the dream, you know, the elements of that dream. When we talk about, you know, the associative elements of that dream are what does that dream mean <laughs> you know <laughs> on that level it means that was the tower from what i saw in nagasaki that was the girl that you know that i had for 24 hours and lost and um that was the ruin to a sierra was my struggle that I went through for years about, you know, my PTSD and my service, my grandmother, my trauma, yeah, all that. Yeah. But it seems I, like, as I uh, shared on that, as I shared in that story though, you know, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I just, it's such a haunting dream. Just the whole imagery of everything, just imagining all of that rubble that you're rowing through being 
I mean, if it's relating it to the image you saw of the atomic bomb, that's like ground zero in your own soul. Yep, exactly. And Very oof. good. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> ground, ground zero in my own soul. Exactly. Yeah, man. And, um, and probably that ground zero in my own soul was the death of my father. Hmm. You know, more traumatic to me than, you know, that all that trauma with my grandmother yeah. was the death of my father. So, you know, I worked this dream with my dream therapist. And uh, I think I write about this in that chapter I sent you, is that the idea now, you know, we and the image we chose was the tower. And the tower stands for the resilience of the Japanese people and the forgiveness that I felt when I was there. This was 20 years after we dropped, the war ended, that's tw only 20 years, that's not long. Yeah. You know? And uh, and there's a resilience and a forgiveness. I never felt any resistance wow. in Japan from the people. It was always, they were always opening and welcoming. It's always a contradiction, you know, when you hear about what they did during the war, the, the people, themselves are just so friendly and open and wanting to help and courteous and you know you know give you the shirt off their back so that's what that you know that image of the tower reminds me of that resilience of the Japanese mm. people that ability to forgive and recover to recover and forgive yeah. and they've done that they've done that and uh, so when I think about tough things that are happening to me, then I think about what the Japanese people have been through. <laughs> yeah. So they, they as a nation have done it. I know, I know there's probably a lot of people that don't think that way, but I, I certainly do. They're a brave, and courageous, and forgiving people. Yeah, I was just reading something the other day that there was, I, can't, I don't even know where I was reading this. It must have, came up on something but uh like shadow images of people that disintegrated that like the flash from the atomic bomb yeah yeah that, that's in my story oh yeah that's okay that's where i read that from yeah okay yeah they, they actually have Whew. pictures of that in the museum from people were in front of a building when the bomb hit and the flash Wow. bleached the building, but it left the shadow where the bodies were in front. And then, of course, the bodies were disintegrated when the heat and the blast hit them. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, you know, just to get off on my high horse, which I always do about nuclear weapons, that, <laughs> that that's like a peanut. Hirsch, Hirsch, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki are like a peanut to these weapons we have now. Wow. You know, you they drop a, a H bomb on, a, you know, a, the a, the navy. Well, not the navy base here, but it would be black, wiped out. But even the one up there in uh, Lompoc, you know, Vandenberg Air Force Base, we're gonna we won't know what it is here in Ventura, and that's over 100 miles away. These these weapons they have now. Are, wow. So we're we're just flirting with annihilation and. Ukraine. 
I don't understand it, why, why we don't want negotiating for peace. It's just insa- it's insanity because yeah. we, box, we box Putin into a corner. What if he starts using new tactical nuclear weapons? What are we going to do? It's crazy. Yeah, we're just really throwing throwing the dice here with humanity. Wow. But I know I'm in a minor, so I'll be quiet about it. Okay, I don't want to <laughs> alien. I don't want to alienate people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it's part of it. You know, serving has done that to me. It's made me uh, anti-war for sure. Yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit That's once what, you got out? Sure. Uh, sure. I will. Yeah. How that. So went. I got out. You know. I, I went through that whole period of, you know, not wanting to live. And then when I moved in with my girlfriend, Linda, and you know, after I started being a therapist, I got serious about school. But I also began to take classes, political science classes. A professor was starting to talk about, you know, the war was a sham. And I'd say, what? What? And the more I read, the more I realized, yes, they'd been lying to us. And then Daniel Ellsberg proved that when he published the Pentagon Papers. Wow. By the you know, he, he just, Daniel Ersberg just died here uh, a few weeks ago from pancreatic cancer. He was in Vietnam, not as a, not as a, he was a Marine, but not in Vietnam, but he was an advisor in Vietnam. And, you know, that pancreatic cancer could have been very well related to exposure to Agent mm-hmm. Orange. Yeah. So once he published, once those papers, the New York Times published the uh, Pentagon Papers in 1971, and the Pentagon Papers were basically a, war, a study about the origins of the war in Vietnam and why we got into it. And it was just, you know, it just showed it was a sham, you know, that we shouldn't have been there to begin with. And um, so it just proved me right because I, I'd say by 67, I got out fall of 66 by late 67 by fall of 67 i was on the anti-war side and at ucla i was involved with the vietnam veterans against the war i went to lots of protests to be giant war protests in uh, san francisco 300,000 people and i'd go to those uh, yeah and when the war ended it was it was pretty amazing, but it just seemed to drag on. You know, I got out in 66, and our involvement ended in 73. In fact, March of 73 was the 50th anniversary of, of March 29, 1973, was the 50th anniversary of the last troops leaving Vietnam. Jeez. And then two years later, you know, Saigon fell to the communists. Wow. Um, yeah, so I've been staunchly anti-war, anti-new anti-nuke since I saw that, you know, at, that was in 1965, I saw the museum at Ground Zero, so I was still had another, over another year to serve. Maybe that was part of my attitude then, too, that I said, you know, that was about the time I realized, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out, yeah. you know. I, I just felt so betrayed and so misled, and all these little things happened. I, I, I was on right before I left the caster. I took the exam for E5, which is second class, petty officer second class, and um, I never found out what happened. You know, and I got to my new ship, and I'm on shore one day in my uniform in San Diego, and a sailor from the electrician games 
considered, hey, Mark, look, you're out of uniform. I said, what are you talking about? He says, where's that second stripe on your shoulder there? And I said, huh? He said, yeah, you passed the exam. You're in your second class. So, oh, I did? That's fantastic. So I go back to my chief. I said, chief, they told me I passed the exam. You know, He said, well, I'll telegraph uh, Naval Bureau personnel. Great. He does. And he says, okay. He comes back to me a few weeks later. I got the good news and the bad news. First, the good news, yes, you passed. Just, you know, second class is fantastic. The bad news is you have to have a year left on your enlistment to be advanced to rank. And I said, well, when I passed the exam, I did. No, you have to have a year left now. I said, chief, that makes absolutely no sense. Wow. That's what it is. I said, you've got to be kidding. And then a few months later, when I said I was getting, I got out early to go to school, Johnson was trying to reduce the troops in Vietnam in 66. And uh, they said, if you're enrolled in a college, you'd let you out three months early. So I enrolled in Santa Monica City College, and I got out three months early. Uh-huh. And the chief, when I got, before I was getting out, the chief came and gave me the, the re-enlist talk, and I just laughed at him. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Come on. <laughs> the way they treated me, this Navy treated me, why, why, chief, would I want to do that? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. So it was, it's interesting. I like I've let go of so many things that I can't let go of that. I don't know what that is. It's the smallest thing, yeah. really. I mean, but they did. They cheated me out of rank and pay. Wow. You know, over a year's rank and pay. So, but it's, I know it's small in the scheme, scheme of things, but it's something I just haven't been able to let go. Well, it just seems kind of petty, right? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Uh-huh. It does. Yeah, yeah. It is what it is. So, uh, do we want to? Should we jump to the Thomas Fire and that dream and all went on there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess. Uh, do so, you want to talk about your own Agent Orange exposure? Oh, sure, sure, sure. And how that is kind okay. of fueling. Yeah, yeah, and that that is a little related to the Thomas Fire too. Yeah. So I'll okay. segue into the Thomas Fire. So. Um, Agent Orange was a defoliant sprayed on Vietnam to kill the vegetation so we could find the enemy. And I have to say this now because the other day I had some heart issues. I was in the emergency room and I said Agent Orange to this young woman. She said, what's that? And I just assume everybody <laughs> knows what it is. Well, they don't. These, wow. you know, these kids were born way after the war ended. So anyway, and, and in Agent Orange was a chemical called dioxin and dioxin was is carcinogenic and it's genetic altering and we sprayed that everywhere in vietnam so they've known that that there's this whole list of what they call presumptive diseases meaning if you were boots on the ground in vietnam during this period you know i think it's from 62 to at the end of the war and you have one of these diseases that most of them are cancers there's also heart disease on there that are listed then you're eligible for compensation that they call disability hmm. and uh, when you reach 100 percent disability it's not chunk change it's a nice chunk of change monthly that's 
tax-free. Wow. So um, I started having heart issues 15 years ago. I have, uh, it's called atrial fib, and uh, which is an irregular heartbeat. Now, atrial fib can be common, but it is, a, you know, when it's linked to heart disease, ischemia, then it's part of the uh, a presumptive disease. So I had applied for that as soon as I had atrial fib, and they kept turning it down. One, it's not, you don't have ischemia, and two, you wear boots on the ground, so they'd reject it. Mm. And then, uh, in, so there was a group of Navy veterans that sued the VA saying that they were exposed to Agent Orange because there was an Australian study, the Australian Navy commissioned a study to do this, not our Navy, not the United States, who manufactured and sprayed, sprayed Agent Orange. It was Australians because in the mid 80s, all these Australian Navy guys that served offshore Vietnam were coming down with presumptive diseases, you know, uh-huh. cancers, heart disease, all this stuff. Why? So the, the Navy, I mean, the Australian Navy commissioned just scientists to do a study. And what they found was we sprayed it. The uh, monsoons would come. They'd wash it off. It'd roll into the bays. We'd be anchored up in the bays. And all ships have uh, freshwater evaporators. So that's how we make our freshwater is from salt water. So every gallon for every gallon of freshwater, you need 10 gallons of salt water. And what was happening, that dioxin that was in 10 gallons of salt water was now the same amount in one gallon of fresh water. Jesus. So we were, we were drinking dioxin-laced water, hmm. showering in it, you know, using it in our food, brushing our teeth with it. God. And so they passed just three years ago, the Blue Water Navy Act, January 1st, 2020. And so if you have a, if you're on a presumptive, you have a list that's on a presumptive disease and you're within 12 mile, nautical miles of the shore of Vietnam, then you're considered boots on the ground. So Oof. I reapplied and they agreed and they gave me back pay wow. for that. So I, for the, and plus then I had a heart attack. So that really put the icing on the cake. I had a heart attack. So I had, I had that, then I had all the qualifications, dyspnea, heart disease, atrial fib and uh, uh, the equivalent of boots on the ground with the Blue Water Navy Act. Mm-hmm. So they gave me the back pay. And... I've calmed down a little. I get on my high <laughs> horse because 50, 58,000 guys of our servicemen died in Vietnam. Mm. Three, since the end of the war, 300,000 have died from exposure to Agent Orange. And has Monsanto or DuPont ever owned up to that? That they knew, there are studies showing from 69, they knew that it was causing cancer in rats. But no, no, they haven't owned it. And the poor Vietnamese people, they're in their the Vietnamese people are on their fourth generation of birth defects. The only way they've controlled it is they've said, if you have birth defects, defects in your family and you have a child, children, the state's not going to help you support your children. 
it's it's a it's a crime. Jesus. It's a crime. But um, so here's a weapon that we didn't really do our homework on that's still killing people. Yeah. And I call it the weapon that keeps on giving. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Sad. Mm. So I'm a, I'm considered a hundred percent disability. Well, that didn't get me there. What happened was, I'll go now. Start with a dream. So I had this dream, uh, probably eight years ago now. I'm standing on the edge of a bay, not unlike the San Francisco Bay, a wide bay. Across the bay, I see my ship, the USS Castor. It's anchored there. Uh, you know, tied up to a pier. And then all of a sudden there's this huge explosion. The ship jumps out of the water. It breaks in half. This black smoke and flames come bellowing out and out of this smoke and flames comes a monster. I originally called him Fire Monster. Now I call him Burning Man and I'll go into that. I, I renamed him. So Burning Man, it looks like he's gonna, he's angry at me. He's roaring at me and he's going to jump across the bay and try me and I wake up. Hmm. So fast forward three years, you know, uh, I had just come back actually with EdTech. I visited, did a return trip to Vietnam, which was huge, really healing. It was amazing. The Vietnamese people are so amazing, very forgiving again, like the Japanese people welcome us back, saying, as soon as the war ended, we were friends, we're friends, we're, we're, we're the same, we're soldiers, we were both doing what we thought was right for our country. Then they always do this side, but your government leaders led you astray. And they're not wrong, you know, they did. It was an amazing trip. So I'm back three weeks, this is December of 2017, and this fire starts to the east of us, a little town called Santa Paula, and it's the becomes the Thomas fire and the Santa Ana winds. These are winds that come out of the east and they're warm and they're, they blow, they're gusty and they blow hard. This fire started and they couldn't stop it. And it comes all the way here in, in 15 miles. It came really fast to Ventura. We knew it was coming. We had a friend in city hall telling us it was coming. So my wife and the tenants evacuate and I stay here. I had all the hoses out and I'm watering down everything. It's, it's here. The fire is here. And I hear at midnight uh, mandatory evacuation. So I leave and I, they're at my friend's house a half a mile away, our friends. And I'm sitting on the curb because when I drive down the driveway and I look up, it's just a wall of flames. I said, oh, our house is gone. Wow. So I'm, I'm there. I'm sitting on the curb in tears. Because this is my dream house where I live now. Mm. I mean, I, my wife and I looked for this house for 30 years. Um, and then I start getting really angry. I'm angry. It's what the fuck are you doing here? And a voice says to me, what are you doing here? You're a lawyer. You know, <laughs> you've got, you got to do what you, you can't, you know, you're not going to stop this fire sitting there. So I run back and I think my house is on fire, but it's my neighbor's house, completely engulfed in flames. And I get here and I have a stand of bamboo. He has bamboo. The bamboo's on fire. I jump up on this rail that's around my spa motor and I, I'm, 
have a hose and I'm fighting it and I knock the flames down. As soon as I stop, it jumps back up and I realize it. I'm in over my head. I run down the driveway looking for a fire truck. I see one. He comes coming down the street. He turns left and drives away in the smoke and I'm yelling and screaming, hey, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> help me, help me. Drives away. Well, later I found out what happened was they lost hydrant pressure on all the tanks on the hills, these 500 homes burned in San and uh, Ventura. Wow. So, and the whole Thomas fire itself in Santa Barbara and Ventura County, there were 750 born, homes burned, but the worst was in here in Ventura. And all their PVC piping melted. All the water ran out of the tanks. There was no fire pressure, oh uh, fire hydrant pressure. So what the firemen were doing then were heading west, trying to get ahead of the fire because they knew that's where the fire was going, and they knew there was still hydrant pressure there. So that's why they were abandoning us, you know? And I didn't know that at the time. So when I'm yelling and screaming at the firemen, a couple of my neighbors come out, I thought they had evacuated. And they said, you need help? I said, yeah, you know, I need, if I have one or two more people, I think I can save the house. So they come, and and I'm, when I was fighting a fire originally by myself, I told my wife, one more person, I think I can save the house. So this guy who's an artist comes and he helps me. And I never thought I was in danger. I was doing what we were trained to do in the military, which mm -hmm. is run to the danger. I mean, I was acting on instinct. There was no thinking about it. This is what you do. You get the hose, you shoot the water at the bottom of the flames, and you put the goddamn thing out. <laughs> just like a ship, you know? And... Then, so the fire department came to a house above us, and all of a sudden they're, they're gone too. And because my neighbors helped me, and they asked me, Can we leave? Yeah, I'll go. And because I, I knew those fire guys were there. Well, they weren't. They left again. Hmm. So for a couple hours, my friend and I fight this fire, and around 2 a.m., there's a 60 unit apartment building next door to us, all wood built in the early 60s, and it's on fire. I said, shit, there's no way we're going to stop that sucker with garden hoses when it gets here. And so about that time, I see flashing red lights in the driveway, and I run down there, and it's a brush fire unit from Lompoc up there by Vandenberg. And I say, I need some help, you know. And they say, well, maybe we can stay for a few minutes. I'm thinking, a few minutes? That ain't going to do shit. <laughs> you know? So they... You know, this is their job. So it seemed to me like they're leisurely pulling out their hoses. And he says, then he comes over to me and he says, okay, you know, I think you and your friend should leave. And I said, I looked at him and I said, no way. If I wasn't here two hours ago, you wouldn't be stopping here because it looked just like my neighbor's house, a pile of rubble. Mm. And I said, I'm not leaving. And they said, just stay out of our way then and do what we tell you to do. And then they assess it and they said, okay. Here's what we got. We got 500 gallons of water. That, that apartment building's imploding in. So it probably is going to fall on your property. It's four stories right next to mine. And there's a telephone pole on fire. And if that telephone pole doesn't burn and fall on your house, and if the, the house keeps imploding in, we think when it comes to your bamboo, we can stop the fire. And that's exactly what they did. They stopped it. Wow. And, and, but they stayed here all night. And then they left at 7 in the morning. They said, we'll come back later and get our hoses. They came back that afternoon. They said, you know, Mr. Marco, we've been thinking about it. this. That, that stand of bamboo you have is giant timber bamboo, and I work on it all the time. I clean it up. 
that's just bright green. It's really healthy. They said that that acted as a heat shield, and that that bamboo saved your house. Wow. So I started acting really weird. I was so pumped up on adrenaline for weeks. And, you know, I, people said, can we help you work? I was working on the irrigation system. People would come and go. They couldn't keep up with me. You know, and I was <laughs> 73 then. I was like, I don't know, I was manic. And I was acting weird. Only I didn't know it. And my wife and my, and I was having some heart issues. And my cardiologist, my wife kept saying, I, I have a, not only the VA medical care, but I have a Kaiser as a, a, a Medicare. And they kept saying, you should go to Kaiser, my wife and the cardiologist, you should go to Kaiser Behavioral Health because you're not acting normal. Mm-hmm. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, the, the macho thing, I'm fine. You know, right. how, how many times have I heard veterans say that? Ah, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so my dog, we had to move out. That was all, we had $200,000 worth of damage Jeez. to the house in the fire. Uh, insurance paid for most of it, but some of it came out of our pocket that he just wouldn't cover. Um, so I'm, my, we were staying at a friend's house down at the beach. I'm taking my dog for a walk. He's throwing the toy, and he falls in the gopher hole, and he, his foot, foot is, and he messes up his back. So I take him to the vet. And he's really in pain. And I mm. said, you got to be careful with him. It's, you know, you got to be really gentle. So as soon as I say that, the vet grabs him, picks him up. The dog starts screaming. I never heard a dog do this, screaming. And my first reaction was, I wanted to strangle the vet. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to kill him. You know. And then my next reaction was, I wanted to run. And my third reaction was, what I did is I sat there. And I said, I told you not to do that. You know, I was mad. But I didn't strangle him. So we're walking out of the vet. I tell my wife, I think I need to go to behavior health because there's something wrong because I wanted to kill that guy. <laughs> so I go to Kaiser Behavioral Health and they diagnosed me with PTSD and they called it continuing PTSD. So it wasn't until a few weeks later I'm thinking about, it, you know, all of that drugs and alcohol and sex. And all that childhood trauma and the death of my father, this is PTSD, and I've had it for years. Wow. Had it for years. And uh, so I went to the VA, and they agreed. So with my heart disease, my loss of hearing, I have not so much loss of hearing, but tinnitus, you know, the ringing Mm -hmm. of your ears. Tinnitus is the correct way to pronounce it. And uh, my heart disease and the PTSD, I'm a 100% disabled veteran. So they've taken care of me. And I know many that I, I think the VA has done for me really well. The medical care is just as good as Kaiser's. Now, it's been a struggle. You yeah. have to have a lot of wherewithal to go through the bureaucratic bullshit to get it. But once you can finally convince them that you deserve this disability, they've been good. And most most vets won't. You know, they all disagree with me. Vehemently disagree with mm-hmm. me, saying the vet, the, the VAs fucked them over. You know, I don't feel that way, but I, I understand those vets that feel that way because it is can be frustrating when they keep saying no, 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 yeah. no, and you think you have the evidence in the case. I, luckily, I had a friend who helped me through it. He was a what to call Vietnam service. He was part of Vietnam veterans. Uh, 
Vietnam Veterans of America, and they have, he was a veteran service officer. He represented you to the VA, and he really knew the ropes, and he helped me weave through the system. Nice. So going back to the dream, that's when I realized that was a portent of what was coming. Mm. That, so that fire monster, that burning man, he was telling me, the shit's gonna fall. The shit's coming, <laughs> and it, it it did. The shit came, and um, I did more work around that dream. And I did a reentry with the dream to Doug Thomas, my dream therapist. And the reentry was we. So we we decided to, we both agreed that you know the image to focus on was fire monster or burning man. Mm-hmm. By the way, I had another dream session with Robert Moss group under retreat where the, where we worked on that dream with a small group, group of four of us. And three of them said when we went into the meditative state to work with the dream after I shared the dream and you know, Robert plays his drum and we, we do his whole conscious dreaming thing. Three of them said, burning man doesn't, I mean, fire monster doesn't like that name. <laughs> <laughs> it pisses them off. So, Lawrence, you better change it. So we changed it. We decided on Burning Man, although, you know, it has the con- connotation of the, yeah. the festival every year in Nevada. But So he's Burning Man now. And when, so in the dream, in the re-entry, the dream, the dream tending with Doug, we row, I get in a boat, and Burning Man's in a boat. And as we're, we row to the center of the bay, and as he gets closer to me, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until the two of our boats in this flat, calm bay were 10 feet apart. And he's in this human form. He's burnt. He's burnt. You know, he's black. And he's the same size as I am. And we look at each other. We look at each other in the eyes and we nod. And with that, nod was a tacit understanding we're okay with each other mm. no harm no foul we're good we're good so and one of these manic things i'm working on the house the irrigation system after the fire this is a few weeks after the fire uh, i'm the irrig- i think i've done it i'm working all day all day eight hours on the irrigation system it's just fried melted and i think i have the last one down done and i so i walk up turn on the controller and i walk down the hill and there's this huge spout of water and i run down there i see where it's leaking and i'm trying to stop it and i'm just angry and i'm raging and i look up the hill and i say i said bernie man come on down here again i'll kick your ass again you motherfucker <laughs> i was just i went crazy you know i went crazy <laughs> and 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 um and then i calmed down then, about a year later, I'm working in the bamboo again, and I see a burnt piece of fence. And I start to go there again, and I feel the power of Burning Man. And he says, it's okay. It's okay, Lawrence. And I said, it's okay, Burning Man. We're, we're good. We got this. So I, I feel he, you know, he was there the night of the fire helping me because there was just one miracle after another. If I would have been up here 10 minutes later, the house would have been, would have went from like 
the bamboo fence to my spall deck to my eaves. Uh -huh. And once it was in the eaves, it would have been gone. Uh -huh. And with that wind, yeah, forget it. And then, you know, those fire, those that tanker truck shows up at two in the morning, you know, out of nowhere. They were lost. They were trying to go east and they came up my dead end street. You know, it's just one thing after another. The voice telling me to go back. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was all Burning Man telling me, you know, you know, connecting with the warrior, saying, you know, you, you need to do something mm -hmm. and do it. And I did. And then all these things just lined up. Wow. My friend coming to help, you know. Oh, you know, it's weird. Oh, I had the town. There's a little town behind us called Oh, and that fire was, it's in the valley. That fire, 8,000, 8, 8, that fire was coming down on them like bad out of hell. And all of a sudden, the wind stopped and it turned at the very last minute. Wow. They were, it's just weird, weird stuff like that happened everywhere. Wow. It was like a, it was the most, it was the strangest, most surreal night I had ever spent that. I, I was up all night you know, fighting the fire, and and uh, you know the good news is you know I I with the help of my friends and uh, the fire department saved my house and we didn't have to go through that. I mean we went through a lot with the insurance. My wife handled all that. I talked to the contractors and stuff. But to start over again, this was a house really we had lived for thirty years up and down the coast of California. We have a, this beautiful ocean view. Of the pier and the islands, it's it's a gated compound. It feels it's the safest place I've ever lived. Even with the Thomas fire, mm -hmm. it's still the safest place I've ever lived. And I thought it would have been devastating to me to lose it. Yeah. Well, if I can yeah. say this real quick, because you've said it in so many words, but I think if I were to articulate this for the people listening, that um, so this dream. And then three years later, the fire happens, and the fire is really the catalyst for what brings all of your trauma and PTSD screaming back to the surface for you. And I just think that dream is so potent for the fact that it shows the ship that you were on in Vietnam, what was it, blow up? And it kind of shot up in the sky? Yeah, and Burning yeah, Man comes out of up. it. Yeah, it blows up, lifts out of the water, breaks in half, falls yeah. in the water, and Burning Man comes out of it. Yeah. yeah, so it almost is like foretelling that when Burning Man <laughs> shows up for real in your life, uh, it's going to crack open all of that PTSD, and you're going to have to come face-to-face -face with it. I think that's... Wow, that's a great way. I haven't looked at it exactly that way, but I think you're spot on there. Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly. man, that's so chilling. I love, that's what I, you know, that's what I love about all this work is these epiphanies. You know, I'm 78 years old, and I still keep having these epiphanies about my life, and it's amazing. It just makes life so interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm not bored. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not bored. You know, I haven't had a corporate job in 20 years. And I'm not bored. I don't miss it at all because I have all this other work I do. And I just, it's just so fascinating and exhilarating, you know, and that's, that's part of the thing, mm -hmm. you know, that vets do, you know, that's why they get home and they can't deal with it. And they go back, they reenlist Iraq, 
Afghanistan, Vietnam happened all the time. Mm. You know, they're, they're, we're adrenaline junkies. And when it's gone, we're just lost. And so you have to, and that's what I've done with all this work, the dream work, the writing, the veterans work, the 12 step, you know, I've replaced that adrenaline rush, that addiction with something that's really constructive. And I'm sure glad I found it all. I mean, it's taken every bit of each one, each the therapy, all that to, for me to reach this point in my life where I can get this big picture of what the fuck <laughs> happened. Yeah, I think that's one of the most special things about dreaming is uh, the images that they give you, kind of like what you've been saying all along, is like it doesn't matter so much you don't really need to vulture them apart, but just having those images, kind of like if we think back to your dream about rowing in the rubble, I mean, just imagining that image as kind of ground zero in your soul, I mean, that alone, like, holds so much, like, power and uh just encapsulates so much of your life in that simple little image that i mean i'm sure you would echo this i this is how i feel about a lot of the hard images that i carry um yeah when you sit with them and you you accept them as part of your journey as part of who you are and where you've been like to have those like you don't want to change them you want it, like they become almost endeared to you in a, in a way that it's not really like a badge of honor, but it's like, uh, it's truth. It, I mean, the image speaks yeah. truth to you in a way that like, yeah. it, yeah, it becomes endeared to you in that way that that is, it's part of you. That's and, right. And, and we, this is, that's what we call in memoir is it's your emotional mm, truth. Wow. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, it's your it's your emotional truth, and 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 that's what you try to get out when you're writing memoir. Your emotional truth. Mm. Other people may say, "Hey, it didn't happen that way," but it did to me. You know, <laughs> you know that's the way I yeah. see it. And and when I take all these images, and the dream work has brought me, you know, in touch with Jungian psychology and the mythology and you know i just see all this as a gift from the gods you know it's you know uh what was her name she wrote eat pray love um famous author yeah i know the book i can't think what her name is either yeah yeah she gives a ted talk about creativity and her uh one of her big parts about the ted talk is she's talking about greek when greek playwrights would write a play and then they'd be leaving the theater and, the, and all the people would be saying, wow, what an amazing play you write, blah, blah. No, 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 no. I, the type play would say, no, 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 I did not write this play. It came from the gods. It just came to me in a dream or whatever. It just came to me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and I'm just showing you what the dream showed me. Yeah. And, and it was a gift. It's a gift from the gods. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the word I think she talks about it, and that the word where the word genius came from. 
you know, when they say you're a genius, no. It was it was it was this gift that the gods handed me. In fact, it's weird. I just sent my novel to an old friend of mine. He used to be a business partner in real estate, you know, soon after retired. And that's what she said. She said, Larry, you are blessed with a blessed with a gift. And I said, Yes, thank you. I am. <laughs> I am, and that's one of the things that there are, I really just recently I, I realized in that Greece, that Greek trip I was reading one of my chapters, the one I call "Everything's Going to Be All Right" about the death of my father. Uh, that's the way I feel. I, you know, that I I have been gift with this, get blessed with this gift of writing. And I used to think uh, my writing wasn't that good. My friends were just telling me it was good because they were being mm-hmm. nice. No, it's good. I brought, you know, I brought a cha- uh, National Guard chaplain to tears by one of, you know, reading one of my stories there in Greece when we were at a hotel just below the Parthenon. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's um, so. And, and I've had a big, you know, epiphany over that that I'm going to quit saying, putting down my own writing. It's good. It should be good. I've been doing it 20 years. <laughs> but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be my own worst critic anymore. That's huge. And so when people give me compliments, I believe them. <laughs> Otherwise, if they didn't like it, they probably wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't say, oh, I know they wouldn't say, Lawrence, this is a piece yeah. of shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, you know I, I need to go back and apologize. I'm still at heart. I'm a sailor and I talk like a sailor. <laughs> And Ed Tech calls it, uh, what does he call it? The It's the spiritual language of the military. Oh, that's awesome. It's prof- profanity. Lo- I'm sorry. I don't know if you have to edit those oh, things. Oh, no, no, that's fine. We'll put it, maybe we'll okay. put a little. Uh, yeah, you might put a little. War- yeah. <laughs> a little warning. <laughs> a warning, yes. Speaking yeah, of I, Ed. I, in fact, I oh, did, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I just got to remind you that my granddaughter's staying with us for a few days. And my wife says today, when when she was in the shower, she said, Lawrence, you got to be careful with your language. <laughs> She's nine years old. I do. I do. That's funny. I, I, I do. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Ed Tick, uh, Ed Tick. Uh, to kind of wrap this up, I kind of wanted to um, first kind of speak to uh you said through his work, a big part of it is um, kind of coming to an acceptance of being a warrior and like not yeah. resisting that anymore. And so if right. we could talk right. to how so, that all worked for you, and then maybe we could end sure. it with you talking a little bit more specifically about your trip to Vietnam. Sure. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I met at Tech at Pacific Graduate Institute in uh, early spring of 2016. And he was talking about his book, Warrior's Return. And, you know, one of the things that we say is the hardest thing in the military to do in the military is coming home. Because you as a, you as a person, your soul has changed. Yeah. And many of us have lost our souls especially those that have been in combat. 
literally they have well, they tell stories of their soul. They see their they're here and their soul sitting over there. Their soul has left their body, and uh, that's the way the Native Americans talk about PTSD. They're, they're, that's their definition of it. your soul is left. Wow. Your body. So <clears throat> he talks about this whole indigenous way in ancient cultures, including Greek cultures, about the way warriors come back from battle. And so when they come back, they're tainted, they're dirty. You know, they, they've been compromised. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing you do is you do, uh, I don't know, I never, there are six steps, I can never remember all of them, but I'll just pick the ones that, the first thing you do is you go back and you go through a cleansing ritual. So like the Plains Indians, they, the medicine men and the Shaw women, they would go out and meet the warriors and they wouldn't let them come back into the village. They would you know, cleanse in the river, they'd meditate, they'd talk to them until they were come down to back to being, you know, life in the tribe again, not life as a mm. warrior. And then the other thing they talk about is accepting the destiny of a warrior. And that was the biggest thing I, I did with that. So accepting the destiny of a warrior is saying, you're a warrior and this is what you did even if you're drafted. But for me, I volunteered. So, um, and because because I had shame about what I, I just, by just serving in that war, when I realized it was wrong, I never even talked about it to anybody, especially if I met a young woman. I would, you know, when I was a young man, I would say I'm a Vietnam veteran. No way would I say that. Of course, you know, we weren't welcome back very warmly yeah. either back then. Yeah. People, I know I have vets that talk about being spit on, and, you know, rotten garbage thrown at them. That never happened to me, but I know that I didn't want to talk about it. So I took that attitude of not talking about it for years and years and years. So in one of Ed's, he does this retreat, it's called Warriors Return. That's what we did. Did I, or did I not sign on the dotted line of my own volition to join the Navy? Well, yes, I did. You know, did I not want to help my country, serve my country? Yes, I did. You know, all those things are true. Mm -hmm. I'm a warrior. And so I've accepted that destiny of a warrior. And when I look at my dreams and I look at my past lives, I've been a warrior again and again and again. And that's who I am. Wow. So uh, I need, so I've redefined my life. Now, my wife says, well, you've been other things too. You've had a successful career. I did have a successful career as a librarian. I've raised a great family. Yes, you know, I do get a little hung up about all this, but, you know, but the, the part, the archetype, I'm, I am the warrior. That's my archetype. My main archetype is the warrior. I may have other archetypes. Mm -hmm. That's my main archetype. And accepting the destiny of a warrior did wonders for me because it made me so now I'm proud to be a Vietnam veteran. I don't hide mm -hmm. it. I probably talk too much about it as far <laughs> as my wife's concerned. I know I do. She's told me that, you know, and I have to be Well, you've made this it. interview very because easy I, for me. I've just kind of let, you, let yeah. you run with it. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that whole cycle of coming home. So that's the, you know, the title of my memoir, Rowing, Rowing Through a Sea of Rubble, A Sailor's Journey Home. And home is not stepping foot back in California in 1966. 
home is here now in my head and all this work that I've done. That's home. You know, uh, discovering my true self or authentic self or however you want to say it in Jungian terms that we call it your authentic self. That's who I've I've found. I'm buried under all that trauma Mm. and all those drugs Uh. and sex and alcohol. I buried it and now it's... uh, it's out there in the open and I, I can live with it. I don't need all that yeah. to live. Uh, I can accept it. And, you know, I can accept it. And I can accept the things that I, uh, I'm ashamed of, too. That's that's who I am. That's what I did. Okay. And if I hurt people, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that anymore and I won't. Mm-hmm. And I don't. So what was the other last yeah. thing? How do we want to yeah, wrap no, it up? Uh, you you just mentioned in passing uh, your trip to Vietnam. Oh, the re- yeah. Okay, yes. So Ed, you know, I meet I meet him, and then I meet him in uh, spring of sixteen. And, and Memorial Day, I do the Warriors Return Retreat in a little town in Boondocks, Massachusetts, which was just really heavy. Then with a bunch of other vets. Afghan, Iraq vets, Vietnam vets. You know, there's not a lot of Vietnam vets left. Mm. Two-thirds of us are gone now. Um, So, oh, I lost my train of thought. So the next step, the next step was the return trip to Vietnam. And he said, Ed says, I've done, at the time he said he'd done 18 of these. I'm I'm going, do you want to go? And I said, oh, I don't know. Do I want to go back to Vietnam? <laughs> I don't know. So I, I talked to my wife, and she said she'd go with me. And I said, great. You know, because I, I want to bring my rock mm-hmm. with me. <laughs> so she said, yes. I said, okay, I'll go. So my fear was, I'm going to be walking down the street. They're going to see I'm American, and they're going to jump out in front of me and yell and scream at me. Yankee, go home, and you baby killer. Well, that couldn't have been more different. So we get there. And every place we went, you know, we visited ex-Viet Cong, ex-NVA, North, you know, Vietnam, North Vietnamese Army, the South Vietnamese Army. They all said the same thing, what I'd said before. We'd, we'd see these guys walking down the street. They'd stop and talk to us. We're all the same. We're warriors. We were fighting what we thought was the right thing. When the war ended, we're friends. What took you so long? Why, you know, why didn't you come back sooner? Uh-huh. And Please come again. We're honored to have you. I heard that time and time again. I had a, you know, and they all have their original uniforms or else they bought new ones. So whenever they do these things, they're all in their full military garb with all their medals. I sat next to a general, you know, in the North Vietnamese Army, you know, retired general, obviously. But, and he gave me flowers and Uh it was just amazing. And that's one of the comments I made the first time I ever got flowers from a general or, or an animal for that matter. You know, it was, and so it was just that time and time again. And then we, one of the steps of coming home is making restitution. 
what you know, you know, lawyers return is making restitution. So we, uh, every many of the families we visited, we all took up a collection and gave them money. And it's really weird in the Vietnamese culture. Culture, the woman, she's the, that, that's the money person. Mm. So when you bring out the envelope, the woman always steps forward and grabs it. And you're talk while you're talking and everything, you know, making an introduction. She pulls out the money and counts it right in front of everybody. It's weird. <laughs> To a T, every single family we visited, they did that. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, it was kind of charming. You know, <laughs> it was just, it's just part of their culture. And we visited a guy who had uh, had relatives from the South, and they were fighting, and he couldn't. He said, I can't kill my relatives. So he stepped on a hand grenade and blew his foot off. And, you know, we gave them money. Uh -huh. We talked it with him. We have a we have an interpreter song. I, actually, if we have time, I want to tell a song story too. It's a it's a dream okay. story. It's a really yeah. powerful one. Can I do that? So, Song Tran is amazing guy. He's worked with Ed for years. His English is amazing. He's a great guy. He was in the South Vietnamese Air Force. So, you know, we U.S. leaves in March of uh, seventy three. Saigon falls. In 75, he's there at the gates when the tanks drive through the gate and take the uh, the presidential palace in, in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, so he they go around announcing, and so all, all the when they're coming, all the guys are thrown away, burning their uniforms, and some of them are trying to leave the country. You know, get on. You know, they're, they're, it was the same mess in Vietnam as it was in Afghanistan over a longer period of time, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we left there, it was you know, this god awful chaos and all kinds of bad shit happening. And Song says, I'm not leaving my country. So he stayed and they said, okay, turn yourself in. And if you turn yourself in, you'll go to a week or two of re-education camp and then you'll be released and everything's okay. So he turns himself in, they send him to a relocation camp out in the middle of nowhere. He's there for two years. Wow. Dysentery, typhoid, you know, everything. They have to build the thing out of the jungle. No sanitary conditions. He's, um, and he's about to give up. His mother, every six months or three months, they can come and visit. It's a two-day walk for his mother to visit. And he, he, he hid his books. He'd, He'd read, he'd loved English literature, and he loved Gone with the Wind. So his mother says, what can I bring her? And he writes it out, because she can't read English. He writes it out, Gone with the Wind. So the next time she visits, she gives him Gone with the Wind. And uh, so he's really sick. He's about to give up. He said, I can't go on anymore. He's read Gone with the Wind over the pages are dog-eared. He's read it over and over again. So that night he says, I, I'm, I'm going to end it. I'm just not going to get out of bed. I'm done. And um, he has a dream. And uh, let me see. I've forgotten the punchline now. He has a dream. Mm -hmm. And oh, uh, oh, yes. Now, so he has a dream. And Scarlett O'Hara comes to him. And she says, song. Tomorrow is another day. It's a famous word, a famous line from the book. Gone. <laughs> Tomorrow is another day. So he wakes up in the morning 
And he says, that dream is telling me that tomorrow's another day. I'm here and I'm going to live. And he decides to live. Wow. Yeah. From a dream. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably the most direct I've heard of dreams saving people. Yeah. You know. Although Robert Moss tells some stories about, you know, pre, you know, dreams to think they're going to happen in the future, but people have seen it happening and they've stopped the car and they haven't crossed the bridge. So they didn't fall off and go down in the, in the river. And then there was a, then there's an accident just like the dream showed. You know, dreams can be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, but I, yeah. I really like this dream in particular because it, it's really, it feels like it's coming from that place, if you want to say, within our heart that is constantly saying yes to life. And yes. it it's yes. that little still voice inside of us that is like, no, we're, <laughs> we can't give up here. Um, yeah. And plus it's so across cultures, you know, what could be... Yeah. Gone yeah, with well, the wind ex- exactly. Gone. Yeah, exactly. And it, <laughs> His favorite book. <laughs> it, that that makes it so much more poignant. Where it's like, yeah, it's coming right. from something that he is. He's read to the bone, yeah. and it's right. its own right. words so, being so reflected whole, back to him. Yeah, exactly. And saving him. One last story about Vietnam, that return trip. So I've lost. Two Navy buddies that I served with, the Craig in Arizona and David Nagai, the, the guy who took me to the museum. Craig died from leukemia. He fought with the VA for years and years, seeing his wife, and finally got disability. David, I lost touch with him, but I did read uh, um, obituary where he died from heart disease. That's, point. That's exposure to Agent mm-hmm. Orange. Then Mark and Blade, they served on a minesweep. I met him after they got out of the Navy. They... Uh, Blade died from lung cancer and and drug addiction, and uh, Mark died from peripheral neuropathy. So these guys hold a special place in my heart, and I honor them all the time. And so we, I did a little ceremony there, and uh, for them, and we because we were in Da Nang. And when the weird thing is, we were supposed to go to the beach in Da Nang and come into downtown. And guess who was there at the time? President Trump, and we couldn't take our big bus into town, and Ed was going to cancel the trip, and the guys got together and said, no, no, we'll just rent a smaller van. Larry's got to be able to do his mm-hmm. thing, you know. So we did, and we went to the beach, and we did this whole ceremony, and then the song kind of helped me turn it into this Buddhist ceremony. So we, we, you know, burned, I burned their pictures that I had of them. We said, everybody said their peace and prayers, and we sang songs and then the weirdest thing I'm doing all this. And I turn around and out on the horizon is a freighter from a distance. It looks exactly like the caster. Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we had little, we, my wife does some ceramic work. We had these little Buddhas and we, we took those and we threw them in the water to honor those wow. guys. And that was a really moving experience for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. I wish I would I wish I would have filmed that for me. If, but you know, I have pictures of it, but we didn't film it. Wow. So that was a good way of saying goodbye to uh, Blade, Mark, David and Craig. I still think about them all the time. Craig, there's a there's another dream I had, you know, I have a dream 
that he comes to say goodbye to me at my hometown. We're fishing in the gutter and trout fishing. And he says, Larry, I came to say goodbye. I'm in Albany, New York, spending the night and going out to a Robert Moss dream retreat at Gore Mountain. And I wake up in the morning, I have this dream, I wake up, and I said, Craig just died. Jeez. I contact his wife when I get back, he died. I had the dream at six in the morning, that's when wow. he died. I still dream about Craig all the time. Wow. Yeah, dreams are pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that he you know, that he that he came and said goodbye to me. That was like that. Just I was so I felt so lucky and blessed. I know it's an overused word, but that's the way I felt that he took time as the soul was leaving the earth to come and say goodbye to me. Yeah, that that really like again captures the whole essence of those are your brothers and yeah that's yeah. right now there there's 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 i got your yeah, back i, I got, got your, your back Lawrence. <laughs> yeah. and i got you we got your yeah. six for sure yeah wow well i really appreciate you inviting me to do this this is this is great yeah i think the very Last thing I'll ask of you is, uh, so I, I was listening to this podcast recently where it was a men's work podcast and the guy who was being interviewed was, uh, he was a veteran. I can't remember exactly where he served, but um, he started this whole organization that I really wish I could, I wish I would have looked it up before so I could actually shout it out. I'll have to, in post, I'll have to make good on this but okay so the organization's name is stars and scars you can find it at starsandscars.org it's founded by a man named ben burns who is a two-time u.s marine corps combat veteran and is dedicated to the fight against veteran suicide their mission is stated as Stars and Scars is a nonprofit that pledges to compassionately nurture emotional, mental, and spiritual wounds resulting from war and military service. It's beautiful. Check him out. Yeah, he was he was talking about the suicide rates for veterans, and mm -hmm. he he said something that just totally shook me. And I think I'll say it, and then I'll I'll ask you given how powerful and beautiful this whole process has been for you with dreams, uh, what would you say to veterans? So what he had said was that the most tragic thing about veteran suicide is the fact that these men or women have been trained to fight for their life till their very last breath. And so it's not that they're coming home and they're just broken people who can't keep it together. These are people who have been taught how to fight till their very last breath. And this is, this is happening to them that they don't see yeah. any way out and they have nobody. And that was just the most like tragic thing that I, I think I've ever heard. Um, just imagining. Yeah, my Oh man, that is tragic. Uh, I, my my advice to veterans would be 
to do what I didn't do, which is hold on to your band of brothers. Mm. You know, try to stay in contact with those guys because when push comes to solve, those are the guys that are going to have your back. Yeah. And if you're at the place where you can't live anymore and you want to take your life, those are the guys that you need around you, giving you the reasons you, sh- you, sh- you should live. Yeah. And I didn't have that. I just, you know, I just walked away from that. I mean, I eventually found it again. I have, I've got, have you ever read Sebastian Younger's Tribe? No, I haven't. Sebastian, yeah, that's a good book. He wrote, he's the one who wrote, uh, you know, about that fishing boat that sank, The Perfect Storm. But he also wrote a book about tribe, and it's so important. So I have, I have all kinds of tribes now. I've got my writing tribe. You know, I'm in this class, and plus I'm in a writer's group. I've got my dream group. Oh, that reminds me. I have a dream group coming up this weekend. I haven't set the notice out. I have a dream group, which is all my women, my wife's women friends. It's amazing. I'm, I'm the only male in the group. Every once in a while, we have somebody else. And then I have, you know, uh, my 12-step group. Uh, I've got my veterans group with Ed. And so I have tribes, not yeah. just, you know, my band, I have had my bands of brothers and sisters that, you know, carry me, yeah. support me. And I help them, they help me. You know, and I, I think that's so important because those are the guys that really understand your band of brothers, you serve with them, or even if they're just in the military and you didn't serve with them, they understand yeah. what you're going through, you know, and they can help you. And these guys, you know, Ed's guys that I've met, you know, Charlie, Ashley, Nate, all these guys, they're just amazing. Amazing. And they've all had their struggles and we've all lifted each other up. So that's that's my advice. Keep your band of brothers. If you can't keep that one, find another one. Because, you know, it gives it puts it gives you meaning, it gives you you know reason to want to keep going on when things are really looking bleak and i know you know they've looked blank to me dark it's like being in a dark dark place that you can't see the out and so you just say no way i can't live like this yeah. i'm glad i never you know pulled the trigger so to speak you know when i had somebody that saw my pain and was able to tell me to do something yeah that heard my pain that i had the courage to express my pain to someone, yeah. It's just holding it in. That's toxic. That's so toxic. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. And then the very last thing that I'll, I'll ask you to speak to is uh, if you could just share a little bit on your heart as far as your gratitude or just like how how these dreams have shaped your life. If you want to kind of kind of tie that up in a nice bow of like. Sure. How meaningful has it been for you? Yeah. The dreams have really put meaning in my life. They've made me realize who I am. And one of those things is a warrior. And it, my dreams have told me over and over and over again before I realized I was a warrior, that I was a warrior. <laughs> They've been telling me my whole life I'm a warrior. So, uh, yeah, your dreams tell you a lot. So I think one of the important things to do is to write them down. 
It's really important. So by doing that, by taking the artist's way, writing the morning pages, writing my dreams down, it's got brought the writing to me. It's got, I'm just full of all these creative ideas. It, the dreams fill my life with creativity. I have a new idea for writing or doing something every time I have a dream. And it, it's just so invigorating and such, it's this creativity that's all inside your head. And, and it's stuff that's buried really deep inside. So when it's coming out in dreams, it really has a lot to say. Yeah. And so if you can remember them and write them down, there's a simple way to, Steve Eisenstadt talks about it, or maybe it's Robert Moss. And it's, you know, have your pad of paper right next to your bed, or maybe it's your computer, or even your phone that you want to dictate into, and just write, you know, if I'm reading, you know, I close my eyes and I chant this mantra, I will remember my dreams, I will remember my dreams, I will remember my dreams, and I'll write them down. And then if I want to get really deep into it, I'll say, I want to dream about X or Y. This is what's bothering me. I want to dream about my father. I want to dream about a goddess. You know, mm. and I want to dream about, you know, being on a fishing trip, whatever it may be. And many times you'll have a dream and you say, that isn't what I want to dream. And then when you start really getting into the dream, start tending the dream, oh, yeah. You know, this is what I asked for. I got it. Oh, yeah. you know, and now that's, I, I know that's a little on the sophisticated side, but you can do it, you know, if you practice. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, they've had that huge impact on who I am. Yeah. And just, you know, with the dreams I've shared tonight about the dream about my grandmother, about Burning Man, about Emiko uh, uh, and, you know, the, the sailor and the schoolgirl, all those dreams have had this huge impact on my life that makes me, that give me meaning, give me purpose, yeah. and and, and uh, give me creativity every night. And I would probably argue that that meaning that they give you, do you feel like, I mean, I love the fact that you said a sailor's journey home isn't necessarily me stepping foot in California. It's me basically finding myself again. Yes. Uh, do you feel like you would have gotten there without the intervention of the dreams? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Wow. I mean, me and Ed Tech had a big part of it, but, you know, Ed's really into dreams too. Right. I've been to a dream pilgrimage with Greece. I, we didn't even talk about that. A uh, I'm, of I'm about to talk to Ed about that. He's going to be on our show yeah, yeah. here coming up too. And oh, cool! Yeah, talk, well, I'm sure he'll want to talk about it. He'll be, yeah. he'll be, he'll be like me, go on and on and on and on. Yeah, we, the, you know, we just got back in April from one. It was just amazing. Oh. This really core group of guys. It was just fantastic. Yeah, I talked to him right Very after good. he got back from from that. Yeah, and yeah, we still haven't sat down for the interview yet, but oh man. Can't wait to to have that conversation with him. Such a fascinating guy. He's an amazing guy. He's uh, one of these guys that just gives and gives and gives. Yeah. Yeah. He's gone through some rough times, but uh, he's 
he's gotten his act together now. He's just cranking out one book after another. I don't know how he does it. It's crazy. I mean, he's like, it's like 73, 74. He's, he's going strong. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lawrence. This was an amazing story, and I really appreciate you telling it as fully as you did. And I think this is the most backseat that I've taken on an interview. I just felt like <laughs> this I was more interested in hearing what you had to say than where I could lead it. And I just I think you did an amazing job hitting all of the hitting hitting it all. I, I'm just really pretty floored by it all so thank you so much thank you thank you oh i can't wait to hear it all put together yeah man you'll you'll let me know huh? absolutely yeah okay all right thanks steve yeah you have a good appreciate yeah, it have a good night you have a good evening it must be late for you huh it's getting there 11 30 yeah okay all right hey, good night take care My soul, where are you? Do you hear me? I speak, I call you. Are you there? I have returned. I am here again. I have shaken the dust off all the lands from my feet, and I have come to you. I am with you. After long years of long wandering, I have come to you again. Should I tell you everything I have seen and experienced and drunk in? Or do you not want to hear about all the noise of life in the world? But one thing you must know, the one thing I have learned, is, is that one must live this life. Do you still know me? How long the separation lasted? Everything has become so different. And how did I find you? How strange my journey was. What words should I use to tell you on what twisted paths a good star has guided me to you? Give me your hand, my almost forgotten soul. How warm the joy at seeing you again, you long disavowed soul. Life has led me back to you. Let us thank the life I have lived for all the happy and all the sad hours, for every joy, for every sadness. My soul, my journey should continue with you. I will wander with you and ascend to my solitude. Those are the words of someone who found what he'd lost about himself and to whom soul meant much more than a distant concept, like some far off twinkling star speaking in code. Soul speaks as one's own voice. It asks where you are, where you went, and when you got lost, and when you're coming home. Our guest for this episode, Lawrence, showed us how our dreams help us recover and reclaim what's been lost about ourselves. Soul is the deepest inner aspect of one's being, and to retrieve it means to find where it's still living inside you. I'm J.M. DeBoard, and for my co-host, Steve Wine. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Dreams That Shape Us podcast, where we bust the myth that dreams are meaningless. Oh, quite the opposite. Dreams are very, very meaningful, very important for your internal life. 
James Hillman, who was a student of Carl Jung and kind of took up the baton, said that dreams are the place where our soul does its work. Now, whether or not you think of soul as some religious notion, you can experience it personally as an inner notion, as something that you can know intimately and personally about yourself. And once you find it, it'll never leave you. Nighty-night.